Constructivism is a learning philosophy dealing with how people make meaning together. On today's podcast, Lori Lind talks about constructivism with Alicia Costello. Find out how Entrust incorporates some constructivist theories in its approach to leadership training. So without further ado, here are Lori and Alicia. Well, welcome back to another episode of Entrust Equipping Leaders. I'm Lori, and my wonderful guest today is Alicia Costello, uh, currently working with Entrust and making some changes in her work as we speak. But Alicia, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate that you uh, wrote a wonderful article for our blog about this concept of constructivism within adult education, and we'll get to that in a moment, but let's just start off with learning a bit more about you and who you are and your educational background. Yeah, so my educational background is pretty simple. I got a bachelor's degree in English, and then because you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in English, I went and got a master's degree in English, Mm -hmm. and I really liked school. At that point, I really, really, really was like, oh, this college stuff is fun, so I went back for my master's. It was a blast, highly recommended, uh, 10 out of 10 for anyone wondering, and um, I loved English was not, I've always figured I would be a teacher, always figured that, you know, I would go into some kind of teaching profession, but that really wasn't my focus necessarily. And so um, as I was going into this, I wasn't setting out to say like, how can I teach this in the future? I was just like, I really like this and I'm going to keep taking these classes and probably I'll end up teaching. Um, And so that's kind of what happened. Uh, during my master's uh, degree, I got a job as a high school teacher. I was kind of a mid-season replacement uh, <laughs> for uh-huh. a school in our area that needed a high school English teacher quick. Mm-hmm. And so I was teaching high school English, and then they brought me back for a full year um, teaching high school English plus a few other things. It was one of those small private Christian schools, and I taught about seven different classes, how wow. you, like you do. And then I um, got out of high school teaching, finished the master's, graduated, went into ministry for about eight years, which is a whole education on itself, and then uh, stopped doing ministry and went into um, teaching college. So teaching uh, primarily community college, so having some students who are 16 and in dual credit classes, some students who are 46 and returning to, you know, school and the whole gamut of that. So it's been super exciting. Do I think my education prepared me for that? Probably not, but I've learned a lot along the way. I guess maybe it did because uh, it taught me how to research. And now anytime I need to learn something, I just research the heck out of it. So Aha. So uh, what kind of classes were you teaching at that college level? At the college level, I taught English uh, 1301 and 1302. So your kind of standard level English writing composition classes. Um, And then I did teach one or two like literature based classes, which were great as well. Wow. How fun. I mean, you, you hear about English teachers. Um, Garrison Keillor used to talk about POEM, the professional organization of English majors who never get jobs because there's not much to do with an English major. But 
you've been able to really uh, use what you learned and what you love. And in, in then in all of that context, then how did you get involved with Entrust? So it's actually a funny story. I was looking around. I had just gotten out of ministry and I was looking around. And I was like, I really want to use my degree. You know, I hadn't really been using it in ministry besides fixing everyone's commas. And so I went in and I was looking on indeed.com, you know, good old indeed. And I saw a, a an advertisement for a curriculum writer, a job posting for interest. And I applied and I, I think I filled out the online form that it said to fill out. And uh, they called me and they were like, how'd you hear about us? And I was like, indeed.com. And they were like, we're on indeed. I didn't know that. <laughs> so You're I guess kidding. Indeed had sort of uh, scoured the internet for job postings, came across this one on for Interest and put it on its website, but Interest had no idea. So okay, I am kind of one of the only Interest people, I think, that did not come from a previous relationship within, you know, with someone from within Interest. So I knew no one when I got here. And um yeah, that's how I came in, involved. We just went through the process and prayed a lot. And here I am. That is amazing. I hadn't heard that before. And how you, it's, it would almost look like accidental, except we know it wasn't. You were meant to join mm-hmm. us, I'm quite sure. So like, so your background is in English and so on. Would you consider yourself more connected to education then or more to communication or, or both, or what? Um, I think communication is education. And I think education is communication. I don't think you can put one without the other. And I think especially where I think people run into issues is when we decide to put education in a box and we decide that education is only what we learn in school or what we can get a degree in. Or, you know, like the three R's, right? Uh, Education means learning. And hopefully that happens for your whole life. You know, we know that babies learn, um, but babies don't go to school, right? Uh, We also, if we take, if we think about education as, you know, what I learn in school or what I learn for a degree or my skills, we also cut out all, all social education, what I do and what I don't do, the etiquette, the morals, that kind of thing. And the second we start to forget that, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> Hopefully you never also finish learning. You know, I, um, I remember talking to a mentor of mine in her 70s, and I was saying, you know, I'm like 30, but I feel young and dumb. And she goes, honey, so do I. And I was like, oh, okay, this doesn't go away. Great. I'm always going to be learning, always going to be growing. And the second that I decide my education stops, then that's that's where we're in trouble. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Like, because when does, if, if we really say, well, now I'm done, I've learned everything there is to learn. Nah, like you say, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Then we're just existing. And how boring is that? Absolutely. No, we need to keep learning and growing. So as we get into this concept about constructivism, this big daunting Mm -hmm. word. So you did write an article, um, and it's paired with an article by Dr. Guthrie from 
uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He gets into all the real academics of constructivism, but you did as well in your article, which I really appreciated. But how would you define this educational theory called constructivism? So constructivism sort of posits or argues, and when I say argues, I don't mean like two people yelling at each other, but in the <laughs> academic way that yes. a, a theory will argue, yeah. uh, that learners will construct knowledge. They basically take in new knowledge and put it on top of old knowledge, right? They're constructing this knowledge rather than passively like taking this in, memorizing it, that kind of thing. And if you think about the word constructing, constructing means that you're building on something. There has to be some kind of existing foundation that you're building on top of. So not only are you learning new info, but you're actively building it on top of previous knowledge. So you're saying like, how could this fit into what I already have, right? Mm -hmm. You inevitably are going to try to fit in that new knowledge with the pre-existing knowledge or understanding it through a pre-existing lens um, as things happen and you're learning from them. Um, and what that really means is that knowledge is sort of deeply personal. Learning is deeply personal to the individual because each person is going to come in with their own kinds of foundations, right? So they are going to actively be building on top of their own individual experience, and they're going to be taking um, different lessons and different emphasis from that new knowledge based on the old stuff that they've learned. So what one person is learning may not be what someone else is learning. The individual kind of makes their own knowledge as they're building on top and sort of seeing it through the different lenses that they're bringing to the table almost. So constructivism argues that learning happens. It's very individualistic that what one person is learning may not be what someone else is learning. And it also argues that it's building on top of previous knowledge. Those are kind of the two big takeaways. And they definitely seem to make sense. In fact, as you describe it, it almost sounds to me like, well, why would we even call that a theory? Because it sounds like <laughs> reality to me. Mm -hmm. But I imagine there are different thoughts about this. And you wrote in your article that constructivism was sort of developed or came into being as a reaction to kind of memorize and repeat type of learning. Um, what's the underlying assumption of that kind of thinking about learning? Yeah, memorize and repeat is interesting. I, I actually don't hate it. It has its place. You know, at some point you have to remember that two and two make four. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm all about memorize and repeat in certain contexts, but it has kind of this big overarching flaw, which is that it kind of assumes assimilation. It assumes that everyone learns the same way. If I say it enough times, it will get remembered. If I say this enough times, everyone will get the same answer. Everyone that they think that giving back the answer I want means they learned it, right? Mm -hmm. And they assume that everyone will remember maybe this one thing on top of this other thing. And 99% of the time it's regulated to things we learn in a classroom, right? two plus two make four. That is education in the memorize and repeat kind of language. However, a constructivist understands that learning is social and learning is not only what we learn in the classroom, but what we learn in our family dynamics, what we learn in our workplace. And, and so you can't necessarily memorize that sort of interaction or that sort of learning. So memorize and repeat, it's 
very focused on this one type, this one way, this one type of person. Um, so while it does again have its place, it just doesn't always, it's not, it's not as grand of a solution as constructivism is. And I imagine that there, these are not the only two learning theories in existence. There probably are other um, thoughts about how people learn or approaches to education besides just these two extremes that we're talking about right here. Oh yes, and constructivism is a very wide like spectrum. There are uh, there are entire learning methods under constructivism. So this is just sort of an overarching kind of theory that is the big umbrella. And then underneath that, you will get smaller umbrellas. I will also want to say that memorize and repeat, again, while it has its place, it's not a very good way to instill critical thinking in a person. Mm -hmm. So if that is something that your culture really appreciates, um, it's not going to get you there. You know, I have heard stories of people learning languages and memorizing the words, but never really understanding what they mean. How then can you go and speak any other language? You know, how can you go and have any other conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to make sure that everyone knows two plus two equals four, but outside of that bound, it kind of breaks down a little. Well, that's right. And you mentioned culture. And I think we can all think of certain cultures that seem to be more focused on memorize and repeat, at least least the maybe it's a stereotype, but I would think of certain ones and maybe some that would be more um, in favor of constructivist kind of learning. Do you think this these kind of learning styles can be part of our culture or should they be or what's what might be the best way to think of the interaction there? I think they definitely can be part of our, our culture. Again, it's kind of a little bit comparing apples to oranges because memorize and repeat is such a narrow focused, um, like it's only kind of in this one instance, this one classroom situation, this one thing. And constructivism is kind of a learning for your whole life. <laughs> Mm-hmm. learning in the classroom and outside the classroom and in projects and when you're a child and all this kind of thing. So it's a little bit comparing apples to oranges. And I think you need both. I think we instinctively do both. I think these um, learning theories just put language around those phenomena. But yeah, I think that certain learning styles make sense inside certain cultures and like go them. <laughs> I'm a constructivist. As long as learning is happening, I'm happy. So you did kind of mention the underlying assumptions of constructivism that we're building on whatever we have already experienced or, or learned. So this is, um. let's take this over to some scripture. Would you be aware of any examples in the Bible of people learning through a constructivist approach? So the first, if I were to like pinpoint, if it, if it goes straight towards a Bible verse, I like to think of that scripture. Um, I, I think it's Paul. Um, and I think it's somewhere in Corinthians. He says, I planted the seed, Apollo watered it. God made it grow, right? Because learning in the constructivist view is so individual that you're not the first person to teach them two plus two equals four, right? Mm -hmm. That they will continue learning that two plus two equals four, right? A constructivist is very interested in the learner's journey. And I think that really speaks to the learner's journey. 
I think as Paul, um, you know, speaks about Timothy's mother and grandmother training him in the Lord. And he's just kind of like, I'm just building on top of what they taught you. You know, I think that that is very, um, that's very individualist centered and journey centered. And I think that a constructivist would appreciate that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm thinking like, as you know, the big question is like, is Jesus a constructivist, right? This is what I (laughs) (laughs) go to sleep and think about at night. Right. I'm sure you do. You just ponder it for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to think of something, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, you know, like with the public, he's talking parables. He's, I think, you know, kind of using Socratic method a little bit because that was available to him. And again, like how, what learning style does a culture learn best in, right? Um, So this would be the most appropriate cultural learning uh, for his audience. But then I'm thinking, you know, Jesus taught the disciples by just saying, come alongside me and watch, right? The reason he had these 12 disciples is to just spend time with them. And so I think then Jesus really gets the fact that learning is social and the fact that there are journeys, like he didn't pick one certain person from one certain, you know, from one certain group. He gathered an amalgamation of Jewish culture in that day. And Mm -hmm. he said, okay, we're all going to come together. Everyone has their own foundation and we're going to build on top of that. So you have to think that there were fights and disagreements and arguments, not only the ones that are actually codified in scripture, but like, Mm -hmm. you have to think that like the zealot and the, you know, ex-Pharisees were yelling at each other a few times. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that Jesus sort of used that constructivist approach maybe to teach socially with his social life with his disciples. And I think he, he brought them into ministry and then he was like, okay, how are you going to solve this problem? Like, what are you going to do? And I think that is very constructivist to just hand people a problem and say, sort it out for yourselves. And I'll just be here to help you along if you get stuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like you can see a lot of examples of that with him just taking a basic thing that people would have already known, whether it was fishing or farming or tax collecting, and then talking about it, expanding on it, letting them, like you say, solve some problems. Um, In in Entrust, we talk about well, we just started talking about constructivism as far as I know, but we used, I've heard terms like discovery learning and I've heard about, like you mentioned, Socratic method. Uh, are all of those interchangeable terms, would you say? Uh, now, I'm not an expert on all of the different ways. I kind of see Socratic method. I've seen it, I've seen it happen a few different ways. When the teacher or the leader of the Socratic method is um, very much like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm the teacher and I'm going to school this kid, right? I've seen it used um, very kind of domineeringly. Mm. And so, and sometimes they even like embarrass the student. And I oh. don't love that aspect of Socratic method. But when it is two people just saying like, hey, here's an idea and you have another idea and let's come to some third idea. I like I like that kind of Socratic. So I think it depends a lot on the person who's facilitating the Socratic method. Uh, discovery learning, I think, does comfortably kind of fit under constructivism. Um, now, I'm not sure, especially in discovery learning, like how much the teacher or the leader, or the guider is into that. I, I kind of picture a Montessori school, like wandering around and, 
and discover things, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I'm not sure like how much of that plays into adult learning and child learning because they're very different. Adults learn in very different ways that children learn. So I don't, I'm not sure about that, but I think discovery learning like does comfortably fit under constructivism because you can say, you know, the the child, it's sort of individually based on the person and the person is adding new knowledge on top of old knowledge. So I like that. Um, I guess they all depend. I get really, it all depends on the one in charge, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. How they approach it and yeah. What, what's their own attitude towards themselves and their role. But you know, when we talk about it's so individualistic and it's building on your own begin, whatever experiences mm-hmm. you bring to the situation in a way that sounds a little bit wobbly to me. What if I enter this learning experience and my foundation is off kilter <laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. way out somewhere, uh, my whole building is going to end up being a bit quite unstable. How, how do we avoid the danger of that in constructivist learning? Well, a, con- a pure constructivist would say like, yay, hooray, learning is happening. We don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. But that, I mean, constructivism is an educational theory, not a moral theory, right? Right. Okay. So I think it, it is the teacher in a constructivist sort of context is the one, I like to see myself as the one who drops bombs in the class and then lets them figure it out. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so whether that's, you know, as they're still trying to fit all of these things into their uh, context, it's not like growing can still happen. It's, you know, I think part of learning and part of growing up is learning that like things aren't necessarily as black and white. They're more nuanced than you thought they were. And I think that still fits comfortably into constructivism. You're not going to go in like everything is blue and you're just going to try to fit and argue about how red is blue. Right. (laughs) I think you're going to go in and learn like, oh, sometimes blue isn't as blue as I thought, or sometimes this isn't as this. And a constructivist is like, hooray, yay, learning happened. We are happy. Education has occurred. Um, But that's really where the teacher comes in and just asks the right questions, asks, you know, the student to think it out. And I guess the Socratic method can come a little bit into play there. Um, But yeah, so maybe not a question that constructivists ask themselves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, because I can see... um... Uh, you, you like you're saying we probably do both if we're going to just say there are these two ends of the spectrum memorize repeat and constructivism we do both all the time because if we just say yay learning happens you could learn anything I mean that's so nebulous that is so wide open and memorize and repeat does say that two plus two does equal four I mean, you could land somehow on some other formulation there, but it would not, there are sometimes a correct answer or a correct direction to head. Uh, and so maybe the two types of learning or thinking need to uh, temper one so another. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's why you need lots of, you need multiple. Constructivism isn't the only way to go all the time. I'm not going to ask my kindergartner what he, you know, what he thinks two plus two is, right? Well, I'm going to ask him, but then I'm going to go, no, it's four. It's four, really. Um, no matter <laughs> yeah. if you say it's 32, it's really four, I promise you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
but then, you know, so I think it's just an amalgamation of all of these sort of phenomena happening together. Constructivists put language on a certain aspect of it. Um, they are describing a certain kind of learning that's happening. They Now they described it with a really big umbrella that a lot of stuff fits under, but sometimes stuff doesn't and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let's back up to Entrust again. And you've been working with the Entrust's curriculum team. How long have you actually been uh, working with Entrust? Two years now. Two years. And as we record this, um, I mean, it, by the time we release this episode, all will know, but you're going to be moving on from Entrust to do some additional creative work and we're and I'm excited for you for that. So but within your two years at Entrust in curriculum, what are some of the projects that you worked on or tasks that you accomplished? Oh my goodness. Well right now we're working on a little um a handbook something I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh format TBD, but we're working on uh, how to have a conversation with difficult people. Or not di- uh, how to have a Difficult conversations with people. Um, the people then, aren't so difficult, but the topics yeah. are difficult, right? <laughs> Everyone yeah. is difficult. I'm difficult. Yes. They're difficult. Oh, everyone. Uh, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And then um, I've worked on several revisions. Um, I worked on the uh, Walking with Christ revision, I've written up numerous, I did things like these articles, blog posts, worked on newsletters and things like that. So uh, lots of different kinds of things that I've righted, right? And I think I just said the word righted. I'm an English folk. I'm an English teacher. (laughs) Well, we're so glad that you have written so many things for interest. I had fun writing it. Writing it. it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, like you mentioned, revising, that's revising some of our training courses, different types of things. Have you incorporated any constructivist thinking in any of the projects that you've worked on for Entrust? I definitely think I have. And it helps me, constructivist mindset helps me as I'm sitting in writing to to sort of get in the right position, I guess. Um, It doesn't necessarily dictate the words I'm going to type, but it helps me get into get into a, what I call the right position, the right mindset, the right thinking. Um, and what I mean by that is when I'm writing, if I'm thinking constructivistly, I guess, <laughs> uh, it helps me not to harp on whether the participant will get the right answer, quote unquote, get the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to get an answer that means something to them. I want them to connect to the material because again, like learning occurs when we're connecting it to old information. So I want that connection to happen and I want thinking and new answers to come out. I'm not so concerned most of the time on whether they will get the quote unquote correct answer. And how do you go about achieving that goal? I think it's in the way you write the questions. Uh, If we're talking discussion questions uh, or reflection questions, I also think it's in the way that you sort of approach the material because I want that connection to happen 
first, and then I want to go into the material. So now that my audience is connected, they're engaged. And then they're, as I'm writing or as I'm giving them new ideas, they are connecting it into what they are um, experiencing. I'm also not trying, it, it helps me really stay away from leading questions, right? And in, uh, I think it's FRL, we talk a lot about open questions versus leading questions. And so it helps me stay away from the leading question. And I find when I'm in that constructivist mindset that I write a lot more open questions. And I try, I tend to not write as many leading questions. When I'm really, when I'm considering myself, I am the expert, I am the teacher, you will learn from me, I am brilliant, right? <laughs> I write a lot more leading questions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, how would you define a leading question? Um, a leading question is one that you ask to get a, a an answer that you're already thinking of, right? So I'm asking them, but I don't really want their opinion. I want them to regurgitate back the what I think is the correct answer to me. So I'm not really asking them to engage their brain, engage their creativity, engage their culture. I'm asking them to repeat back that two plus two equals four. And while that can be helpful in maybe the beginning, right? We talk a lot about like the flow of the questions, why that may be helpful in the beginning. um, I think you can still use a constructivist sort of beginning point to get to the same place even at the beginning of a, of a discussion, like of a Bible passage? Yes. I think there are ways that you can ask or focuses that you can make that, you know, sometimes we have discussion leaders that will ask like these very specific questions. Um, and, that, and that's what they want. Like, oh, there's a, a group of 10 answers that you might get, you know, or that you might give. But really, we're just looking for these 10. Mm-hmm. And I think you can even employ constructivist thinking and that connection into your first few questions. What's the advantage, like the end result of using in constructivist thinking in like structuring how you lead a Bible study or a Sunday school class or or whatever kind of teaching? Like um, it makes sense, the idea, like I'm building on what I've already known and I'm adding and I'm thinking but why, why would it matter in the end to have helped your learners learn in that method? First of all, I think the information really sticks more to the learner. Let's just put the learner into that perspective. It, it makes, because they have built it on top of a foundation they already have, it sticks more, it's relevant to them. It's not just remembering when the Civil War started, right? But it's actual things they might use. And then I think, honestly, constructivism makes you a better teacher. Um, now, I know a lot of people, you know, listening to this might be leaders and might be like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I think constructivism, like as you are asking the questions, as you are discussing, as you're asking people to put new learning on top of old foundations, you are finding out what those old foundations are. Mm. And so you are able to build off of those foundations. First of all, you have a better connection with your members of your group or class or whatever you have. You have a better understanding of who they are as people, who they are as participants, where they're at. And so then you can 
go in and make questions better, make questions simpler, make questions this way. That way you can kind of tweak the learning experience as you go along. Um, you can, if for me in my classroom, I would always like find out their foundations the first couple of weeks of class and then assign readings based on what they would connect with, right? Mm -hmm. So you get a better idea of your people, we'll say, and then you get a better idea of as you see, as you see where they start and you see where they ended, like what really affected them, what helped them. So you're actively learning. This is how this kind of person thinks or processes or filters, things like that. You're coming up with better questions to improve the learning experience as you go because of who your people are. Mm -hmm. Right. You are not just sticking to the script. Right. We're mm -hmm. basing the script on the people. Mm -hmm. And so then I think that makes you a better teacher because you learn how to teach all these different types. And then I think as you look back and you see what worked, and what didn't work, then you discover, you know, how you might reconstruct the script a little bit to make it better for next time. So that definitely works well in a, like, sounds like we're talking kind of a small group setting or a setting that's um, centered around discussion. Now, what if um, I'm equipping leaders as a seminary professor or mm -hmm. a teacher such as yourself or a pastor? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's a setting that doesn't just lend itself to asking questions even or discussion so much. Is there any way to incorporate constructivist thinking in that learning environment? Sure. So a uh, spoiler alert for me, I actually teach grammar in my classes. A lot of English professors don't teach grammar in their classes. But as I was talking to my students, I realized that they're actually really worried about whether where to put a comma <laughs> and they get really stressed out in their papers because they don't know where to put commas. I don't know and, how many hours of sleep I've lost, um, you know, the old serial <laughs> comma question. Yeah, I know. Uh -huh. And so I realized that this is a very big stressor to them. And so I was like, you know what? I understand that memorize and repeat, like it's just, it doesn't work and it's not good, but I'm going to try it. Right. And so I went in and overall, it's been very positive to, um, you know, kind of teach the students like how to, where to put commas. They feel better. That's what they tell me. I feel better. I feel like I know grammar a little better, which is good. I like that. Anything to take the stress off of them. Students are too stressed. Just bottom line. <laughs> That's amen. That's so. <laughs> so then uh, I noticed that they were starting to get a little bored. They're starting to get a little restless. And we were going into uh, a part of our class where we're going to edit a paper, right? We're going to learn how to edit. Mm. And so what I wanted to do is not just give them like the memorize and repeat this and this and this, and this is what we look for, blah, blah, blah. But I wrote a really bad paper, like a just terrible paper, a, a, a paper that would have gotten a D minus in my class. And I handed it to them. I decided I'm going to put the learning in their, in their, their hands. I just handed it to them and just watched them freak out over the fact they couldn't understand anything, that things were misspelled, things weren't explained. They jumped around, you know, the points all over the place. <laughs> and I just watched them lose it over how annoying this paper was to read. That's great. <laughs> and as I sat there and I was like, all right, how do we fix this? Mm -hmm. They, they explained my lesson, you know, they sat and I, I'm serious. I had maybe a 32 slide PowerPoint ready to go in case it didn't work. Mm 
they explained 31 of those slides themselves. They sat down and said, okay, first of all, we need paragraphs. This is atrocious. (laughs) We need to define our terms. We need to not use pronouns until we've explained what they mean, right? We need to go over here and do this. We need a good title. And I was just like, okay, yes, here you go. This is, that was constructivism at, you know, at its best, I just went in and I dropped the bomb and I just walked away and watched the aftermath. And if there were any kinds of good questions I could ask to steer in a certain direction, that's what I did. And so that's kind of how I took something as, as memorize and repeat as grammar and made it a little constructivist, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you give the students we didn't come up with this because we're brilliant. We've come up with this stuff because it works and it's it's the right thing to do with a little bit of thinking about it. And so I think what we can do is just like, instead of, okay, everyone, let's open the book and learn chapter three. Um, we can just ask the good questions and the kids will get to chapter three, right? Maybe they disagree with chapter three a little bit. Maybe they agree with chapter three a little bit. That's okay. I am just watering a growing seed. Maybe they will get there in the end. Maybe they will not. Ultimately, whether I'm a memorize and repeat kind of teacher or a constructivist kind of teacher, that's not even in my control anyway. A lot of people have been memorized, memorized, memorized to get the right answer and then thrown off the right answer at the end, Mm -hmm. right? So constructivism sort of helps me as the teacher to like take myself down a peg or two. <laughs> once, I t- once I take myself off that teaching pedestal, a lot of times it's just two honest people working together to find an answer that is meaningful and works. Wow, that is a great definition right there, two honest people working together. It makes me think too that constructivism probably works best when the teacher or the instructor has a good dose of humility. Oh, yes. Uh, if you're a control, a control freak, constructivism will help you to not be that way. Because again, the whole idea is there's a foundation. I probably didn't put that foundation on. I'm just watering this seed. They're going to build on top of this when I leave. And it's not, you know, I had a, a teacher mentor tell me one time, you're not the only one who's going to teach them to write an essay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you don't have to point out the 30 things wrong with their essay maybe point out two or three, the things they can learn. And then they will, a a history teacher will tell them the other ones or uh, a a literature teacher or a science teacher will tell them the other ones. You don't have to be the end all be all of their knowledge. And I was like, oh, that feels so much better. I'm I'm less stressed. (laughs) Sure takes the pressure off, doesn't it? My goodness. Almost back to what you said about the scripture where Paul says, I planted Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. I don't have to wait and be responsible for the whole entire growth process all by myself. Yeah. And I think it also like as teachers, sometimes we can get so stressed in, in, in making sure our students and, and setting this thing to get the exact right answer, right? We can do all this work. We can have pages and pages and pages of notes, and we are the ones working hardest in our group. And really the students should be the ones working hardest in our groups. Mm -hmm. They're the learners, Mm -hmm. right? So they are the ones who should be processing, who should be thinking it should feel like a workout to come to your class or Bible study or whatever, because you shouldn't be the one running marathons to make this happen. 
they should be. Mm-hmm. So um, if I could tell a quick story real quick. Yes, please. Very much illustrates that. This summer, I went with our youth group to help redo a house that was still under construction from Hurricane Harvey. Mm. And so we're down here in Houston. Harvey's still a big deal. And I had a group of 12-year-old boys, okay? And we are redoing this house. And it's come to the point where we cut, we're cutting baseboards to put in the house, okay? Mm-hmm. And so a, a memorize and repeat kind of teacher would walk around and say, okay, first what you do is you make sure you have all the baseboard you need. The second thing you do is you memorize the wall, or you know, you measure the wall. The third thing you do is you mark the baseboard. But I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I handed them a baseboard. I said, I'm going to cut because I can use the saw. How do you do this? And I just let them think it out and figure it out. And they said, okay, will you cut it? And I said, okay, where? And they said, well, I think we should measure it. And I said, that probably would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So I handed them a measuring tape and I said, go ahead. And they measured it. They came back. They had forgotten what the measurement was. So I said, maybe you should write it down. Uh They're 12, you know. (laughs) So uh, they go, they get a pencil and a pen and they go write it down. And then they have to remember how to, how to measure things because, you know, they're 12 and they've only done this in math class before. Mm-hmm. So they get, you know, the thing, they measure it, they write it down, they come back and they go, okay, it's this. And I go, okay, how do I cut a baseboard based on that number? And so they're like, oh, we have to measure the baseboard. Yes. Okay. You know? And so I just kind of let them do all the thinking work. And if we're writing, you know, how much I thought about it versus how much they thought about it, I thought about it almost none. I let them figure it out, them do all the work, them do all the thinking, them do all the problem solving. And I did very little except ask questions. But if I was the memorize and repeat teacher, I would be like, wait, why is no one taking notes? I'm telling you exactly step by step how to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very basic sort of idea about how constructivism happens, the difference between memorize and repeat and constructivism kind of thinking is I just kind of drop this bomb on them. How do we cut a baseboard mm-hmm. and I'll handle the power tool, but you have to handle the rest. And they figured out the right answer. Those baseboards are in. Did they, I was going to ask what actually happened with those baseboards. So they did. Fit. Oh, oh yeah. They were great. <sighs> we did have to cut a couple of times. They did, uh, forget that you had to, you know, cut it on an angle. So that changed the, we ruined one or two baseboards, but it, it, and it took way longer than if I would have just told them, this is what you do process step-by-step, but they learned, I have a feeling like at least half of them could have done it by themselves by the end of the day. And they'll take that back and be like, oh, I could cut a baseboard. That's easy. You just do that. And even there, you mentioned a couple of baseboards got ruined. Maybe there there does need to be room to allow some mistakes in constructivism as the learners are learning. And then as Christians, again, we are concerned about there are right and wrong answers to certain things. Now, maybe we get tied up on too many rights and too many wrongs. And the way I understand everything is the only way. And yet it's not a free for all in, in our understanding of scripture or in our equipping of leaders for local churches. So allow some mistakes. I can see that. And yet what's the, you know, what's the balancing factor to keep people from concluding things that might be way, way off base. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's partly the understanding of the journey. It's a journey. When I came to Christ, I didn't have any idea. I probably still don't have an idea, right? Mm-hmm. And so just keeping that sort of humility in yourself, as I think that's important as a learner to keep that humility of like, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, it's still a journey. For us, who's also concerned with there are right answers, there are wrong answers, et cetera, remembering that it's a journey and making sure that the relationship is open enough that I I don't cut off this person because I think they have the wrong answer, but the relationship is still there. So I can still talk to them. I can still help them. I can still, you know, be in that relationship because a constructivist, like any learning has to happen as a social, like you have to have two of you, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if I go away, that learning can't happen, right? Mm -hmm. So a constructivist understands learning is social. So there has to be that social relationship there to continue the learning process. And so I understand it's a journey. I'm not trying to be anyone's Holy Spirit. And I want that social aspect to continue because then learning can still happen. And guess what? The Bible says God is the one making it grow. So like, I'm going to trust him and his Holy Spirit that eventually we will get to the quote unquote right answer. Mm. I hope that's the right answer that I came up with because I like to be right, (laughs) but I understand that might not be it. And that's okay. Well, you're still learning. I'm still learning. And that's exactly (laughs) what we're talking about right here. Um, That's right. We're learning together and this podcast is helping us. Your insights today really, really have expanded my understanding. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was so great to talk to you today. You've been listening to another episode of Entrust, Equipping Leaders. We're so glad you're here. If you found this conversation between Lori and Alicia interesting, definitely check out Alicia's article called Constructivism and Entrust Perspective on our website. There's a link to the article and to our site in today's show notes. We'd love for you to subscribe to Entrust, Equipping Leaders and share it with a friend. Thank you and see you next time.